Hey guys, welcome back to Joko Yo. The California Gold Rush, you've heard of it, completely changed the American economy. In fact, we just referenced that in the last episode. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of gold, obviously, but y'all, I don't know if 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 the amount of how much change came out of the California gold rush is really like appreciated by most people. I mean, like, wow. Let me just tell you how much it changed the American economy, just to start off with. From the very first discovery at Sutter's Mill of gold in California on January 24, 1848, from the very first discovery of gold, People from dozens of nations poured into California, including people from the Asian continent in large numbers for the first time. And that was the largest immigration event in American history up to that point. Also, it encouraged the creation of the Transcontinental Railroad. If there had not been a gold rush, there would not have been a, a railroad tracks to try to get out there. It's also why the West Coast state of California became the 31st state ahead of other territories that were closer to the East Coast, like Kansas. And that's not even to mention the amount of gold that was pulled out of the ground. Okay, so in, in 1849 dollars, $10 million. $1849 was pulled out in 1849. $41 million was pulled out of the ground at Sutter's Mill in 1850. $75 million of gold was pulled out of the ground in 1851. And in 1852, $81 million was pulled out of the ground at Sutter's Mill. Y'all, that's crazy numbers. But it's even crazier when we realize that that's not even adjusted for inflation and time. If we adjust it for inflation, the amount of gold that they pulled out in 1849, adjusted for inflation, they pulled out $300 million. 1851, $1 billion worth of gold. In 1851, $2 billion. And in 1852, $2.5 billion. Y'all, y'all, I don't know... I don't know how you are with math, but when you pull out $5.5 billion that didn't exist in the economy, you pull it out in three years, I mean, I think it's pretty substantial. And it continued to pull in about $1 billion every year after that through the 1860s. That's a lot of money. Pulling in that kind of money consistently was just transformative for our still young nation. Needless to say, the money supply was greatly expanded. More money in the treasury, more money in businesses, more money in people's pockets. But like the old saying goes, the sun can't shine all the time, and the gold supply began to shrink a little. Just a little bit. The California gold boom wasn't drying up by any means, but it wasn't doing what it once was after 10 years, and that was enough to scare banks and investors to make them want to lend out less money. It kind of spooked them a little. It also scared people who had been thinking about going to California to try their own hand at finding gold. So fewer people 
after 1852, went to California, and as a result, the businesses that had sprang up in the West, along the westbound railroads, they began to not have as much business as before. And some of these guys had, pardon my pun, banked on having more people come. And start, instead of having more people, they started to have less people. Businesses lost money. As a result, began to lose some of their investments. You don't have to have a PhD in economics to learn that lots of business loss can snowball quickly. And when it snowballs big enough, it can impact an entire nation. If it gets bigger, it can impact the entire global economy. I'm looking at you, Great Depression. Well, you know, it snowballed. Again, the gold mines didn't dry up. They just decreased in production, which was enough to spook investors. And you might say that, that it wasn't really that bad because if, if, if this event had been that bad, we would have heard about it. it wasn't as, you could say it wasn't as bad as the Great Depression because the economic downturn was in the 1850s, and we didn't have a global economy yet. With the Great Depression, it wasn't just the United States. It was also Germany, Great Britain. I mean, because we were in a global economy, you might say. And so this was different. You, if you thought that far, I'm, I'd say, well done, good thinking. But I'd say, well, you, you're not really, you're kind of wrong on that. Because you see, along with the decline of businesses, also goes the decline of the value and the investments in railroads. Them, and, and railroad stocks, of course. Because if people are not using it, you know, the value of the railroads, it goes down. You know, sort of like the housing markets have done here in North, in central North Carolina uh, a couple of times in the last 20 years during the movement of people to the West. People were eager to invest in railroads and bought lots of stocks. Then West, when Western migration slowed, enthusiasm about the profitability of these railroads declined and investors lost lots of money. It was an investment bubble. We've seen those and bubbles pop. But what made this a global phenomenon? Well, a lot of that goes back to a new invention called the telegraph. See, information from the floor of the stock exchanges about the sell-offs of railroad stock went all over the world, sending stock owners into a panic to sell American railroad stocks. But, but then it had a ripple effect because America wasn't the only country with railroads. But many American railroad companies bought supplies and parts from the same companies that British and French railroad companies did. And if American railroads went bankrupt, the parts companies could suffer, which could hurt British and French railroads too. And stockholders in British, British and French railroads began to sell out. See? Snowball effect. Railroad stocks peaked in 1857 and declined from there globally. The bubble had popped. Some proposed, North, some proposed North Carolina railroads that were in the planning phase never got built, and many North Carolina investors lost, a, lost large amounts of money, including many people from Johnston County, since there were two proposed railroad lines that were supposed to come through here. Banks began to fail. By the spring of 1858, nearly all commercial credit had dried up and merchants and store owners were not able to buy inventory. Railroad construction stopped. Some railroad companies declared bankruptcy. People were laid off in numbers that would not be seen again until the Great Depression 70 years later. Farmers were unable to pay their mortgages, which made the banking situation even worse. 
Land sales nearly stopped, westward expansion stopped, and the United States entered into the first real economic crisis of its history. Historians call it the Panic of 1857. Now, it's called a panic, but it's just another word for a depression. And just like the Great Depression, some people thought that the losses, if caught early enough, could be offset by a quick and substantial infusion of gold. And so the very thing that got you into it, you think that it's going to pull you out of it. Oh, yeah. So on September 3rd, 1857, 477 passengers and 101 crewmen left for New York City on the SS Central America, loaded down with $550 million of California gold. Sailing up the Atlantic coast, it took a while. I mean, we're still dealing with wooden boats and, and, and cloth sails. And the trip wasn't really so bad until six days later on September 9, just off the North Carolina coast, it ran into a hurricane. It was only a Category 2, but we in North Carolina, we know that the most dangerous part of a hurricane is not really the wind and rain, but the fact that it seems to never stop and goes on so long. It was still in the storm on September 11, and by then the winds had shredded the sails, the boat was taking on water, and it began to leak, and eventually it sank to the bottom of the ocean, taking all that gold and 425 people with it. Those people died, the money never came, and so the panic happened. This same hurricane also hit eastern North Carolina, causing significant damage, but the real storm was... I mean, honestly, about to come. I asked my grandfather once, who was born in 1926, what he remembered about the Great Depression. He said nothing changed. Poor people were depressed before, we were depressed during, and we were depressed after. We were always depressed. Like most economic depressions, including the Great One, this one hit the urban areas more than the rural ones. You know, the, the places where the money was was in the cities. Depressions are really all about a loss of money. There's usually no money in impoverished rural areas, especially when a lot of the country's still doing subsistence farming. Yeah, I mean, you can't lose money you don't have. In 1857, the cities, the industries, the banks, the railroads were all in the north. Therefore, the Panic of 1857 hit the northern states significantly harder than it hit the southern states. Significantly. It is known and understood that money and power generally go together. So a loss, or at least the appearance of, of a loss of money, would lead to a loss of power. To some southern politicians whose states were more rural, a.k.a. poorer, here was an opportunity to flex some political power that they had never really had before, to push political agendas that, for a good reason, were never seriously listened to before. These agendas were like fringe agendas. Like, what are you talking about, guy? Usually not taken seriously. And the politicians, congressmen, governors, and even Supreme Court judges that preached these extreme ideas were generally ridiculed, again, with good reason. But the wackos got brave. In one case in particular, Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, along with six other judges, four of them appointed by Andrew Jackson, not, not exactly a paragon of, uh, well, equality, 
said that to be black in America is to be a slave, period. A Supreme Court Chief Justice said, like, literally those words. Now, four of the guys, four of the Supreme Court judges that went along with that, four of them were slaveholders. This case, and again, same year, 1857, added fuel to this fire, gave some of these people that, that have been, you know, silent about their crazy ideas, gave them some, some, some I don't know, some feeling of legitimacy even, um, it gave some people thoughts that their fringe ideas of equality or lack thereof were legitimate. And indeed, reading the journals of these slaveholding judges, especially those entries after the decision, showed that they allowed these fringe ideas more weight in the decision of the court case Scott versus Sanford than the evidence that was actually at hand. And, and basically, they were buying in to radical ideas following the skewed politics of the time rather than actual judging. They played politics from the bench. Just to give you an idea, one of them like legit even quit the Supreme Court in 1861 to join the Confederates. That is proof of a political agenda. I mean, how much fringier can you be? How much more extreme can you be than to shout in favor of secession as a congressman. All congressmen took and take an oath to serve the Union and protect the Constitution. If you didn't go there to do the job, then why'd you seek it out? If you're not there to support the Union and the Constitution, then you must be there to support something else, maybe yourself, in violation of your oath. They all tried to defend themselves by saying they're defending the Constitution of the United States, and so... You defend the Constitution by seceding from the United States and the Constitution. So, so the way to defend something is to abandon it? Okay, dude, whatever. So people that were not taken seriously by their colleagues began to speak more, which got their names and their fringe beliefs in the papers across the country and hijacked all other political conversation in the country. Literally, there was no room in the papers for anything else. The sensationalism, the, the radicalness of these things, of these, of these ideas of secession, these, y'all, threats sell papers far better than appropriations bills. Adolf Hitler once said that if you, that if you tell a lie enough, it becomes truth. And you can't hear the truth whisper when all you can hear are the lies being shouted. That's how it happens. He would know. And they began to turn the opinions of many Southerners their way to one of the most destructive, ridiculous ideas ever put forth in Congress, and there have been plenty of those. They were not taken seriously by many in Washington, while they were treated more seriously by the, by the, by the minute, almost, outside of Washington. Like, the papers were reporting on this thing that, that most congressmen were like, yeah, this is not real, but the people back home were starting to buy into it because that's all that's being printed. By 1858, secession talk had planted enough seeds and had gone on too long for it to be undone, despite the fact that the economy began to rebound. Pandora's box was now open, the damage had been done, and civil war was inevitable. 
by 1858. And there are still people 160 years later that believe the lie of the legitimacy of secession. And the majority are still in the rural areas. And to think that it's possible that the whole thing could have been avoided had it not been for a hurricane off the North Carolina coast. Hey guys, welcome back to Joe Yo. 